fight the devil and fight all these answers off and whatnot. Second week, last week, we were really talking about uh, really asking yourself the question, um, what are the questions your culture is asking? Right? And I went over specifically questions that my culture was asking by going over that questionnaire and whatnot. And I went through two arguments, the, uh, the argument from the first cause and the argument from design. And I ran out of time to do my third argument, which was going to be the moral argument. Now, the only bummer about that is that the moral argument really is, in my opinion, the best argument in apologetics to bridge an argument from outside of the Bible, which is what I was working with, to the gospel. So how, I mean, if that's our goal, right, that is our goal to try to get people from uh, an argument outside the Bible to the gospel at all points. So the moral argument really is the best uh, argument to do that. So, uh, and that really hits on the main question, really, really the biggest question or the most frequent question that Christians are ever asked about God. And can any of you guys guess what that is? Anybody? No hands? Right there. What do we got? Exactly. Yep. That's exactly what I got up there. How can a good God exist with so much evil in this world? So what the plan for today is, uh, for time's sake, we're going to look over a quick video. It's a five-minute video. It explains this argument really well. And then I'm just going to review it. And we're going to review how we can really bridge the moral argument to the gospel and then we're going to flip it over to you guys, and we'll explain this here in a little bit, but you guys are going to be answering the questions, okay? So uh, let's get ready to do so this you thing. Get so leg, You get a leg up on the first uh, question right now. There are other questions, but this is going to be the first one you're going to be giving to your group. Either way, here's a five-minute video. Enjoy. It's really good. Uh, yeah. These are... Um, that video this thing is, messed up, is a really good resource, and we're going to talk about resources afterwards, but those videos by a guy named William Lane Craig, and he goes off and does a lot of videos about arguments for God's existence, those are really good, and, uh, and I would advise looking at those just for simple, memorable ways to learn how to answer people's questions about even this one being uh, good and bad, evil and good. Um, so, so really, the essence of the moral argument, what it's trying to get the person who doesn't believe, or what we're trying to get the person who doesn't believe in God to ask, is the question, where does this sense of morality, or this sense of right and wrong, uh, good and evil, where does it actually come from? Uh, and then you kind of just walk down the line, because a lot of times they'll say, well, you know, it comes from yourself. Of course it comes from yourself. Everybody makes their own morality. You decide what is right and wrong. But if that's the case, then your sense of morality might, might see an old lady walking across the street and say, hey, you know what? My morality's telling me I need to go help her across the street. Very good of you. My morality, on the other hand, might look at that same old lady and say, hey, you know what? I'm a little low on cash, and uh, maybe I'll go rob her and take her money. Well, if both of us are making our own morality, who's right? Apparently, we're both right, right? So, so atheists have realized that and said, oh, I can't be right. Our, our, we can't make our own morality. It's, it's the culture that makes their own morality, right? So, uh, and that's what you'll hear a lot of times when you're talking to an atheist or somebody who, who doesn't clearly understand these things. They'll say, well, it's the culture that makes it. Uh, but if you follow that, uh, Ravi Zacharias, I actually don't have his quote up here, but he quickly said, uh, um, in some cultures, people love their neighbors, 
In other cultures, people eat them. <laughs> do you think the purpose of that is, do you think that the person being eaten has a, has a moral uh, uh, obligation to say, hey, what you're doing to me is wrong. I don't care what the culture is saying. The culture can try and convince me as much as it wants that what it's doing is right. To me, it is extremely wrong. And the most obvious place to go to that is Nazi Germany. You look at, you look at uh, Nazi Germany, and they clearly thought what they were doing was absolutely right. And interestingly enough, from a Darwinian uh, uh, worldview, they weren't far off. Survival of the fittest. Weed out the weakest, right? According to that worldview, what they were doing was right. And that's exactly what they thought they were doing. They were fully convinced that what they were doing is right. I was just watching a documentary last night about um, ISIS. And these guys are fully convinced that what they're doing is right. But yet we're looking at this saying, uh, I don't care how convinced you are that you're right. What you're doing is objectively wrong. So that's the question we're trying to get somebody who doesn't believe in God to ask. Where are you getting this sense of morality? Where are you getting this sense of right and wrong? Um, because when you do kind of look at it from a Darwinian perspective, and we are nothing but just a bunch of lucky chemicals that evolved into intellectual animals, then me robbing an old lady is no more different than, uh, um, uh, or, or me robbing an old lady is no more objectively wrong than uh, uh, water boiling on a pot. Do you get mad at your water for boiling when, you're, when you put it over a stove? You look at your water and say, stop that, knock it off. Well, of course not, but it's just chemicals, just chemical reactions. And that's what we are, if, if Darwinian evolution and that's the whole philosophy is absolutely true, that's what all we are. Or, or me killing somebody is no more morally, objectively wrong than a lion killing a gazelle. Right? You saw that in the video. No one's going no to put a lion in jail for killing it. It's just, it's just an animal. Just animals doing what animals are doing. And that's exactly, if this is true, what we should look at right and wrong as. Well, there is no objective right and wrong. And uh, the problem with this worldview, really, is actually, Richard Dawkins says, um, if, if you are a philosophically astute atheist, you have to come to this conclusion. And you have to admit this, even. And this is what Richard Dawkins says. You saw a little quote of it in the video, but this is the actual full quote from his book, uh, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian uh, View on Life. He says, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication... Some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. You won't find a rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect. If there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That's the kind of worldview that you have to have if you're philosophically astute and you're saying there is no God. It's not an option. You have to have that conclusion. But the main problem is we look around at this world and we say, you know what, it really does seem like there are actual things that we would say are objectively wrong. In my, in my questionnaire that I was doing, it was amazing that people would say, well, I don't really believe in God, but I definitely believe that there are some objective, objective wrongs out there. Raping, murdering, those are on the top of the list. You absolutely cannot do this. But if God doesn't exist, then where do we go from there? 
And an objective right and wrong really does fit into a biblical worldview, doesn't it, Adam? Yeah, I, I got into an argument at UPS many years ago with a guy uh, who didn't believe the Bible. He was an atheist, and he was fighting against the morality. And this is many years ago. And, uh, and I said, well, do you think it's wrong to murder? Well, of course it's wrong to murder. I said, well, where did you get that? Well, I didn't get it from the Bible. I said, well, where did you get it? He goes, well, I got it from my parents. I said, well, where did they get it from? He goes, well, they probably got it from their parents. I said, and where would they have gotten it from? He went, he goes, and I kept on doing it. He goes, well, then whoever was probably got it from the blankety-blank Bible. I said, well, there you go. <laughs> Eventually, we got back to truth, didn't we? And one of the things that I would say is that uh, we have, because remember, we said at the beginning of this uh, apologetic class that we're here to be winsome. We're not here to win arguments. We're, we're trying to win souls, right? But we have to do that intellectually. We have to do that biblically. We have to understand the moral argument. We have to understand the arguments outside the Bible as well as inside the Bible. What I want you to know is that every person you talk to, regardless of their worldview, you have an ally within them. And there is a consciousness, Romans chapter 1 says there's a consciousness within every individual that God exists. They can see by creation, Romans 1 talks about. And then Romans chapter 2 has these words here. I think we have it up here, don't we? There we go. Romans chapter 2. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. This is what John was talking about. They are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is what? It's written where? There's where your ally is. It's written in their hearts. This is why, by the way, I'm convinced that atheists and those <laughs> anti-Christians uh, who may be agnostic, if you'll notice that the vast majority of them are very angry people. They're, uh, even Dawkins, he just he can't hide his animosity toward Christianity. And, it, they just can't. And I think it's because they're like Paul. They're sort of kicking against the goads of their consciences. Because it's written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You have an ally in the hearts of even the most... Nobody is a natural atheist, because only the fool says, what? There's no God. But a lot of people say there's no God. Something has to break. Something has to switch. And, uh, and that's where I think you have to continue to appeal because there's an ally there. Yeah, I mean, I love that, that what I underlined there. The law is written on their hearts. Their consciences are also bearing witness. That whole idea that it is ingrained in every single human being. C.S. Lewis said, it's, when he was thinking about this, he said, it's almost as if someone is trying to get at us. <laughs> and that's exactly true. God is trying to get at every single human being by even if you never grew up, even if you are, I, this is a question that I would ask people when I was doing the uh, uh, questionnaire with them. I'd ask them, okay, well, do you think that you would still think some things are wrong, even if you, I know this isn't going to happen, but you lived on a remote island just by yourself, and then you never knew, you never had any upbringing, and then all of a sudden you were introduced into society and you saw somebody get murdered right in front of your eyes. Would you think that that was wrong? And they kind of thought about it for a while, and and some of them said, well, I don't know. But a lot, most of them said, yeah, I, I, think, I think I would think that was wrong. And that just shows there's something inside of each and every single one of us saying, yeah, I don't, there's something wrong there. Um, and so the question we want to 
ask is how do we bridge this argument to the gospel? And I think it's, it's extremely natural. All you have to do is explain the gospel. And, uh, and really, you just, you just look at it, and, and some of these verses are so clear. The Bible first tells us that we have a moral law living in every single one of us. That, that is Romans 2.15. The law is written on their hearts, and their consciences are also bearing witness. It also tells us, the Bible also tells us, that we have broken this law, and we have this inner pressure to be made right or forgiven for breaking the law. Well, that's Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also tells us that it is only after we acknowledge that there is a moral law and that a God has created that law and that we have broken this law, then the possibility to be made right or forgiven presents itself. And that's Mark 2.17 when Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call those who are righteous, but sinners. Now we know that nobody's righteous, right? It's, it's, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to call those who think they're righteous. I came to call those who understand or know that they're not righteous and understand that I have broken this, I have broken this law and I'm, you know, I'm screwed basically. So either way, then the Bible tells us that we, while we have never lived up to that moral law, there was one who did. Jesus the God, man, he himself didn't stay distant from suffering. He embodied suffering on a cross uh, and created a way to be made or for man to be made right with him. So that's really how uh, we can bridge the moral law or the moral argument, I should say, to the gospel. It's extremely natural in that way. So that's probably my favorite argument. And I've talked to some people, even some guys in this room, that the moral argument is just key in you, if you like apologetics. So if you're going to memorize any argument and have it in your arsenal, I suggest this one. Uh, from there, we're going to actually get into the you guys answering questions. I think what we're going to do, you want to describe that? Yeah, and keep in mind, when we, we're going to put some questions up there, and you're going to get it. Here's the way your groups are going to be. Whatever row you're in, that, just take your chairs, move around into a circle. That becomes your group. You're going to answer these questions. We already put the first one up. We'll put it up again. And remember, you're not here to win a war. You're here to win a soul. Now, we don't have the end. We're not... We're, Originally, that was put an antagonist within the group. That seemed too complicated. So you're going to actually answer the question, okay? As if you're going to have an antagonist, because you're not just trying to win the argument, you're trying to win them. What would you say biblically? What would you, what kind of arguments might you use outside the Bible? You're going to get about four minutes for every one of these questions. And now we want to be wrapped one. up at six, so yeah, we so got we about, only got about tw- uh, 17 minutes. So no. fire up that first question. Right away, get your group right now. Go, quickly. Uh, the row you're in, get in a circle. And, uh, all right. Uh, we're going to be brief with our answers because we'd like to hear from you, okay? So this is basically good God allowing evil. Why is that? I mean, if God is good and if he's all powerful, why does he, uh, let's, uh, let's go to the back here. Did they, did they assign our missionary to speak or do, is that Jonathan? <laughs> Who's, the, who's, who's going to talk back here? Yeah, well, Loud and clear, Jonathan. Yeah, we just talked a little bit about how the, the issue is uh, we can't blame God for the evil of the world, you have to blame us for it. Mm-hmm. And so that, to me, that helps a lot to, to see it's not God's fault, it's something he does with the perfect world that he Okay, so an apologetic perspective you would put it back on ourselves and say, the, the problem with evil isn't God. The problem with evil is us. We're the ones doing the evil. That's what I'm hearing you say. Okay, very good. 
Over here. Okay, that's good. So you go right to the moral argument. You say you're asking the question. You must believe there's a God. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a theological and a philosophical answer to both of those. I mean, that's, they have to play in, in coercion. That's good. That's good. Let's move up to this group here. Kurt, are you the guy? Okay, so the free will says that what's the free will begs the question, what's the alternative? I mean, if, what's the alternative? If the alternative, I have a bad mind, but the alternative apparently is we don't, don't get choices. We don't choose to know, love, and, and, and have a relationship with God. We're just robots in the deep, right? Okay, good. Uh, let's, let's move across the other side over here. This group over here. John, your group over here. This is, God has temporarily given this world, what's that, 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, right? Okay, all right, good, let's move up to the next group, right here. Lisa, are you, who's, who's talking? Oh, no, there's a group right here. Okay, that's good. I mean, don't just copy, but redundancy is a good thing. We're, we're having some of, you're coming up with the same kind of thinking. So let's move over to that group right there. That, uh, Kurt, you've already talked, right? So what's the next group on the line up here, right? Which one? Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say there. There, it's absolutely not implausible that short time, short, short term suffering can result in long term pleasure or, or good results. I mean, you look at the story of Joseph. Uh, C.S. Lewis quote was anybody who says that good can't come from suffering has never been to the dentist, and that's from somebody who was, you know, it wasn't Novocaine wasn't invented back then, and and it's it's just very true. So that's a really good answer. <clears throat> Uh, let's move up to the next group. Thank you. Randy, your group.
And then we also talk about good and then evil, uh, again, based in man and the fall. Okay, so when we throw out, when we say sovereignty, and it's a, it's, a, it's a cherished word in our theology, right? I mean, we love the sovereignty of God, but we don't want to use it as a sort of a panacea uh, to say that uh, it's the explanation for everything. It is, in some sense, an explanation because we don't comprehend the sovereignty of God completely, do we? Isn't that a true statement? And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to take away from any of the groups, but I'm going to also introduce another thought. What about mystery? So, is it okay in a gospel debate, a gospel presentation, remember we're not trying to win an argument, we're trying to win a soul, to be humble and say, you know, really, I don't understand. So when somebody gets personal and says, my mother was just hit by a car last week by a drunk driver and was killed, explain that to me. Uh... I think the humble and right answer is, I, I don't know what God's purposes were. I do believe that he is a good God and a loving God and he's a sovereign God. That means he's over everything. And I know he's working something out. I can't explain what it is right now. I'm just so very, very sorry for your loss. And we have to become human in these moments, right? And not to be theologians. Would you agree? I think that's really, really important. I had a neighbor come up to me and do that very thing when his, he's, he was 80, his son was 54, he had a brain aneurysm and died. This neighbor was closed-minded to everything until his son died of a brain aneurysm. Then he was open-minded to let me have it. And that's what he did. He just let me have it. And I just took it for a while. But God gave me wisdom in the moment. He'll give you wisdom as well. Let's move to this next group. Is this right here, David. <laughs> oh. Okay, that's an interesting. Did you guys hear what he's saying? He introduced the concept of Satan and his fall. So God, you know, if our theology is right, that there was some kind of a, uh, there was some kind of a, of a time, a testing period at some time in eternity past, where apparently the angelic reign. Uh, realm had an opportunity to choose their loyalty and love to God, and they didn't. And why would it be any different with us? So you, you're, you, you're invoking, uh, you're, you're going back to theology, but it's not a bad thing. That's good. That's good. Let's go up here. This group right here. Who's talking in this group? Well, you didn't have an assigned one here. All right. John? Okay, so back to the argument on the back. I mean, it wasn't from God, it was from man. He, he, he referenced Romans 5.12. Adam rebelled. This is, we're, we're suffering the consequences of that. So there, that's good. Let's move over to this group. We have a women's group here. They just want to remain quiet in the church. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm being facetious, gee whiz. <laughs> talking about how uh, God created the world and um, how our perspective um, as creation cannot, um, a creation cannot understand the perspective of God who
who sees the beginning and the end. There you go. Getting back to that sovereignty and, and, and allowing mystery to take place. This group over here. Two groups. <laughs> Lane, go ahead and answer. Speak is one. We want to get to one more subject before we move on. Okay. Yeah, so it's that whole moral argument thing, getting back to that. Did this group back, get, back here get a chance to speak up? You, okay, we have another question for you. So get ready to go in your groups, okay? Do we have it up here? We don't have it written down. Okay, here it is. I want you to listen. What's that? Did we miss somebody? All right. What'd you get, Curtis? Go ahead and answer. <laughs> All right, everybody's got the same. Sure? Good job. Okay, Good we'll work. start with your group on this question. Because this, <laughs> because, I mean... Guys, right now, with the LGBTQ movement as strong as it is, same-sex marriage since 2015, June of 2015 has been legal in every single state. It's legal, okay? So uh, uh, if gay people love each other, how does that hurt anyone? If they love each other and they're not hurting anyone... How does that hurt the culture? They're asking that question. How would you respond to them? All right? You got four minutes. Start talking. Okay, this is, uh, this is what I had in mind when I asked you the question, if the world you're living in now is the same world you were born into, and virtually everybody says, no, it's different, and you're right, it is. It's really different. And the answer to this question to me has huge ramifications in your home. You got, I mean, many of you are young, you have children. We have grandchildren. They're, gonna, they're, they're already growing up in this culture. They're already growing up in this culture. It's all around them. And so we have to decide how we're going to embrace uh, the tr not embrace the culture because we accept it or we like it, but it's there. We got to live in it. We got to move in the midst of this culture. And I would say one more thing. If, if history repeats itself as it so often does, that tells me we are looking at an ominous uh, future. And uh, so how do we deal with it as a church? How do you deal with this as an individual? Okay, so... Not, this isn't just the argument about whether homosexuality is right or homosexuality is right or wrong. It's it's taking it a little bit further. It's a little more nuanced. You know what? What do you say to the person? Well, if they're not hurting anybody, what's the problem here? Let's start with the group that didn't get to say anything. Speak up, Heath. Okay.
Okay, so you're having a conversation with someone. Francis Schaeffer was a prophet. I mean, he, about 30 years ago, 40 years ago, he said, I'm quote, I quote, he said, if we have no way by which to judge society by way of an absolute, then society becomes the absolute. And we are seeing that here. And yet, you said, actually, I think this is a great evangelistic thing. I'm going to take a little issue with that because I think we need to prepare ourselves as true hospitals, as true clinics for help. We're still really early in this. So right now, people, I think, are fearful to, to write books and articles for fear of being, you know, hailed a bigot or whatever, because we're going to find out a lot of bad stuff is going to come out of this, and we got to be ready to land on this thing. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, these, I think we have great evangelistic opportunities here. I, I, I would beg to differ. I think we have great evangelistic opportunities out of this, but we have to engage in the conversation, and we have to engage lovingly. Let's, uh, let's move back to the next one. Lori. Yeah. What an honest response. Thank you, Lori, for that courageous answer. John. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm saying John because he's the one building the arguments from outside the Bible, which Lori is saying we got to find more of those. Uh, <laughs> and the reason for that is that's less, they're, less author they're not authoritative. No. They're reasonings. They're not authority, and that's the reason why they're willing to listen. But you got to do that to bring them back to the truth. Yeah, I think that that's exactly what Paul is doing in Acts 17. I don't, I don't think there's anything heretical to um, not using biblical arguments from the Bible to point out to somebody. And this is, I, I've dealt with some of my friends, their biggest objection is, well, I mean, how, you guys are just a bunch of bigots. How in the world are you going to, uh, uh, you know, why in the world should I, should I believe that the Bible, you know, all these things that the Bible is saying when there's so much bigotry in it. Um, I think that if you do start with those uh, um, arguments for God's existence, it's the logical conclusion. If God, if you can convince somebody that's the most plausible explanation that God exists, and then you can move that from, okay, God exists, now let's move to the Bible. And here are still some outside evidences of God's existence is the reliability of the Bible. You're still not using Bible verses. You're just using, here's how the Bible is historically accurate. Here's how, you know, you look at all of these uh, um, uh, evidences for the resurrection. And if you can get somebody to say, holy smokes, okay, without even having touched homosexuality, I'm really trying to be convinced that God actually exists, that the Bible is actually trustworthy, and that this guy, Jesus, actually rose from the dead, which means it's probably true that he actually was God. Okay, well then, what's the only logical conclusion? What, what you're working with somebody is, is trying to get them to believe that first which is what I think you mean by we have to love on homosexuals when they come into the church. It's not, you, you don't deal with that and say, hey, 
you know, you're a drug addict. I want you to make sure you know that before I introduce the gospel to you. I, you're, you're a lesbian. I, it's, it's, you're a sinner. We're all sinners. You need the gospel. And then once salvation comes, you can introduce that. But I understand that there's going to be a huge barrier in the process, but that is the way that I have approached it in the past. Yes, that would be your daughter. I, I would also, I, I don't want to take anything, because you, you talk about this in your groups, and we're obviously not going to get to all the groups, but I hope that one of you, by a show of hands, did any of your groups talk about the fact that all forms of sex outside of marriage are sin? Okay, so we are identifying one form. Every, every form of sex outside of marriage is sinful. And I think it's interesting, by the way, in, at the very last chapter of the Bible, in, in Revelation 22, 15, uh, God sort of generalizes it. Outside, that is, outside of heaven's gates are the, quote, sexually immoral. That's all of them. And I think we got to go there. We got to, you know, we're not just pigeonholing one segment, even though we are talking about one segment here. Let's move on. Let's, let's, uh, let's move on. Across. Kitty corner over here back to... I, I see, I, let's see Josh Jackson. Are you going to be a spokesman back there, Josh? Okay, Josh, talk up. Kaylee Nemers, will you give an answer? Yeah, you're not just sinning to yourself, right? I think we need to remember that in Romans chapter 1, this uh, homosexual behavior is called, quote, against what? What's the word? It's against nature. And I think that's something we have to be able to lovingly make our way toward because if it's against nature, it's not going to work, not over the long haul. And that's where we have to introduce the idea of continue, never stop loving with a, with a true, not disingenuous attitude. I have a number of individuals in my life that are homosexuals, and I genuinely love them, Lori's daughter and Sean's daughter being one of them. And I want them to know that I love them, no matter how long i got to bear with them, because it's against nature, and I think eventually that'll bear itself out. Next group, come up this way. Kurt, you're on. Make it good, buddy. Make it stick. with an example? Oh man, you were so onto something there. <laughs> John, we're outside the Bible. Can you come, can you help us out? It's really nice to know that you're the guy who works outside of the Bible, by the way. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks. <laughs> um, 
But that's good. That would be a challenge to come up with some kind of mirror that way to, as, a, as a way of showing. Again, we're talking about trying to win, and you do it through reasoning. By the way, I don't want to just circumvent Heath's question he threw in there before we went to the next group. If somebody claims to be born again and yet is, uh, and yet is uh, insistent upon living out a homosexual lifestyle, I don't mean being tempted to that end. That's a different study. That's a different thing altogether. Committing sexual sin in a homosexual, be it uh, uh, homosexual or lesbian relationship. Then you have the right, as if they claim to be a Christian, then they're claiming all the things that John had They're claiming that, that they have some truth basis. They must be claiming the Bible, though it must be some, it's a distorted view. And I would take them to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. That's where Paul says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he, he, he lists a plethora of sins, and one of them is homosexuality. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But this is the cool, this is the beautiful thing about 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. I'm going to say it again, 1 Corinthians 6, verses... 9 through 11, you should never forget that reference. Because it's, it's not only the greatest reference in a, in a little capsulization, but it's the most redeeming reference. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. The idea is, you may have been particip participating in these, and by the way, homosexuality is just one of many things, but God changed your heart. If your heart's changed... Uh, you'll change toward these sins. If I'm a thief, I might still be tempted to, to steal, but I'm not going to steal because the Spirit of God now lives in me. If I'm homosexual, I might be tempted by the same sex, and indeed I probably will be. But I don't have to participate in that. I have a power within me to say no. Amen? Uh, next group up uh, here. Randy's group here. Talk. This is a great one to end up. We're certainly not, a, we don't, as a church, we have to, we've all, the church has always been countercultural. This is a great opportunity for us. We need to look at it. It's a problem, but it's a great opportunity. I love what Randy said. I don't know if you caught it in the back. He's saying, I might have other issues that I'm struggling with. I'm, and we always, whoever we're talking to, be it somebody who's arguing about the existence of God, be it someone who's arguing or, or struggling with same-sex relations, we, are always have to, we always have to realize that we ourselves are sinners, and we have, to, we have to show ourselves as that. Sharing your own personal testimony, your own personal struggles, not being afraid to talk about it. For me, I would say I struggled with morality, sexual immorality. It wasn't of the homosexual kind, but what difference does it make? It was all sinful to God, right? And when I put myself on the same level, 
Maybe get a chance to win them. John has a couple of resources. He's going to share those with you, and then we're out of here because we're out of time. Well, there is some right on the screen. Obviously, the first one being uh, know your Bible. I mean, if you're going to win people over in an apologetic way, got to know your Bible. The other one that's been huge in my life has been C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Named my daughter Aslan, so I have a huge admiration of C.S. Lewis. But the first five chapters of Mere Christianity are, in my opinion, the best uh, 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 argument for the moral argument that I've ever read. Really good. And then if, you want, if you're really into this kind of stuff, I would suggest William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith. It's a really deep book, uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's very good, very systematic in that way. That's it.